Well, good morning, dear friends, old and new. Uh, my word for centering prayer was, was just thank you, because I feel a lot of gratitude for this community and that we're here together this morning. So we have been in a series about relationships. Relationships are so important to us that they are worth their own sermon series, we think. And to be alive is to exist in a web of relationships. The more you are ingrained in that web, the more alive you are. I invite you to fight me on that one. I believe it deeply. That's a propositional statement that I'm willing, a hill that I'm willing to die on. Every day the evidence mounts. One of Father Richard Rohr's daily meditations this past week was on quantum entanglement, for you nerds out there, and the physics of relationships. Some human development theories discuss how the relational experiences that we all have, they become biologically embedded into our very bodies and minds. You might read the psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk's book, uh, The Body Keeps Score, or Dr. Bruce Perry's work on how infants and toddlers' brains develop based on how they are related to. Again, to exist is to relate. When we started this series a couple of weeks ago, we began by exploring the idea of relational theology, or about how to think about religion and faith in relational terms. In short, I said, I am done using non-relational terms for God. The image of God that Jesus reveals to us works its way into the fabric of our society and our paradigms for leadership and government. Until then, you can keep your omnipotent king and your angry judge images of God. I am done using them. I'm interested in the God who stands in solidarity with us via crucifixion at the hands of domination systems. I'm interested in the Christus Victor God who is victorious over death, the trickster God who pulls a fast one on Satan and renders him powerless. I'm interested in she who combs the tangles out of my hair, to use one of my favorite metaphors for God. We need post-colonial images for God in a post-colonial time. We need new wine for new wineskins, and so that's what we're talking about here. And then in subsequent weeks, we talked about how to foster relationships via social media, and Jared, a visiting uh, preacher for us that, that morning from First Austin, he talked about the story of the Good Samaritan. Aurelia uh, talked uh, the next week, and then Fran will be speaking to us next week about family. So please take time to listen to all these sermons. This week, I'm talking about friendship. Now, my initial thoughts about a sermon on friendship were A, friendship bracelets, uh, B, the green yuck emoji face, and then C, the fact that I carry a fair amount of friend shame because I don't have deep friendships that span decades. To be honest, I have a history of letting friendships die when they no longer serve their purpose in my life and just by a show of hands, if you want to this morning, I'm curious, does that fit with anybody else's experience? Yeah, I can see plenty of hands there. So learning to be a friend is something that's been coming to me in my 30s. I'm in my upper 30s now, so it's a later development in my life, something I've learned uh, to foster and to nurture. I say I lived with friend shame about it because it's one of those things that I assumed I should just know how to do, like running or breathing, 
but now I realize it's one of those intangible societal assets that we can either foster and nurture as a society or we can allow to wither and die. Sixty years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote the words that I included in your guide this morning at the beginning, and he wrote, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. It is something quite marginal, not a main course in life's banquet. It's a diversion, something that fills the gaps in one's time. How has this come about, he asks. And that's a really good question for us to think about. I chose for us this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Let me read it for you. It says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Jesus was in his home. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And when they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and, having, and after having dug through it, they let down the man on the mat on which he lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then turned and said to the paralytic, I say to you, Son, stand up, take your mat, and go home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. We hear the truth of God in the reading of these sacred words. Thanks be to God. I'm sure you've heard this story. <clears throat> In many Bibles, the story is often given the extra textual title as the story of the paralytic. It's something that we've added in in later years. We call it the story of the paralytic, which doesn't really surprise me. We often frame the world in terms of pathology like that. We look at the story and we see a paralytic. I mean, why don't we call it the story of the community of five friends? But we don't or the story of the restoration-seeking rogue roof rippers. But we don't. No, we see a paralytic. We see pathology. To be fair, this is ultimately a story about the authority of Jesus over the authority of a legacy religious system. Take note, everybody who's called clergy in here. But why do we often treat the community of friends that brought this man to Jesus as merely a prop in the narrative? Think about them for a moment. There are five of them altogether. How long had these friends known each other? Do they have a history of carrying each other depending on who's ill, who's sick? 
Is this one of the ways that they'd come to make meaning in the world, taking care of one another? How long had the four of them been carrying the one? Are they part of a larger community wherein they rotate taking, care of, taking turns caring for whoever needs to be cared for? Were they family that moved beyond mere blood relationship and into a deeper commitment of friendship? Can you imagine their desperation at times? Imagine litter carrying a full-grown man all the way to Jesus' home and then climbing onto the roof, digging through the mud plaster, separating the wood framework, and then lowering your friend down with ad hoc ropes. Do you think they ran and hid after their act of holy vandalism? Or did they poke their heads through to see what happened next? These four are a profound picture of friendship. They go beyond the obligation of family and certainly beyond the cordiality, cord, cord, friendliness of acquaintances. <laughs> cord, cordiality, cord, cordiality. They go beyond that. Just do that. They take care of one another. They prompt so many questions for me. They're usually glossed over, but for me, I have so many questions. And one of the biggest questions I have is where it says in verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Excuse me? Their faith? Their faith? I mean, this is intriguing, right? Faith is seen as a communal asset something that, that, that doesn't belong to just the one person, but instead it's something that belongs to the five, that the five are creating and participating in together. It's a living web. It's a living fabric into which this man's life, his past, his present, his future, has been woven. All of their lives have been woven. And this is the definition of soul that Dr. Uh, uh, Bruce Rogers Vaughn uses when he talks about soul. It's this fabric that you have been woven into now. That's where he exists too, this man. Jesus saw their faith, the faith of this community of friends. The four, they lower down the one in front of Jesus. And Jesus looks up at the four and he looks down at the one and he looks at the hole in the roof and he looks at the four and he looks at the one, and he looks at the four, and he looks at the one. And somehow, from all of this, he ascertains that the man's sins, and that there's no longer any reason that he should be paralyzed, no longer any reason that he should live as a supine member of the community. Jesus takes all of that in, this beautiful picture of friendship, and somehow comes to the conclusion, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this whole sin and paralysis idea probably doesn't make sense to those of us shaped by 21st century Western thought. But the ancient mind, and really many people today, they link sin and sickness, sin and physical ailments. We don't do it as 21st century Westerners. A lot of the rest of the world did and does. Sin and sickness are linked in many cultures throughout history and even still today. We tend to make fun of these people. 
But what if we are actually the weirdos that and separate and set against one another the mind and spirit versus the body? What if we are the ones that are wrong? In our medical systems, we'll see this kind of illness minimized as merely psychosomatic disorder, as in psyche, mind, body disorder. And we'll say that, oh, that person isn't really sick. I've heard plenty of medical providers and hospital systems dismiss patient illness by simply saying, oh, it's just psychosomatic. They're not really sick. They don't need a doctor. They need a, a psych consult. They're not really sick. I can't do anything for them. Maybe bring in the social worker to hug them or give them a chaplain to pray with. I don't know. They don't need, you know, real medicine. Get them out of here. We need the bed for real sick people. I think this is to our great detriment. The causes and effects of psychosomatic illness are real. Anxiety, distress, shame, loneliness, depression. These have real effects on the body, like high blood pressure, respiratory illness, gastrointestinal illness, migraines, back pain, stomach pain, ulcers, and on and on and on. What happens in our minds and in our spirits impacts our bodies, and that's the link that Jesus is making here. We're not told the cause of this man's paralysis, but we do know that mental, emotional, and spiritual pains are sometimes even physically paralyzing. And further, if sin is anything that causes a rupture in relationship, and that's our working definition of sin around here, then I can easily see how sin leads to mental, emotional, and spiritual illness, which again can legitimately have some physical effects on us. Relational illness can be physically debilitating. It seems to have been for our man in the story. But Jesus sees something else. He sees more than a broken man. He sees that this man has community. This man has friends who have intertwined their lives with him. And if I could go out on a limb here, this causes Jesus to say, as far as I'm concerned, from a divine point of view, I see no reason to keep this man on his back. Whatever ruptured the fabric of his community with God and fellow humanity has clearly been repaired. So son, get up and walk. I'm not saying that all physical sickness is the result of spiritual pain, emotional pain, mental pain. I see a link here, though, and it certainly is linked in the Eastern mind. I don't entirely get it. Again, I'm limited my, by my perspective as a 21st century, overly educated Westerner. But there's some kind of mystical divine causality here. A mystical divine causality between this man's community of deeply committed friends and the, his paralysis. Do you have friends like this? Are you a friend like this to others? Now, I want to point out, I'm not alone. The religious leaders don't get it either. They lose their mind. Uh, who do you think you are, Jesus? You can't do that. You have to follow our bureaucratic protocol intensive system of forgiveness and healing. We have, we have a process for this, Jesus, and you are not following the social and religious order of operations here. Jesus could have 
simply responded by pointing at the four friendly heads poking through the hole in the roof and said, they started it. I just finished it. But he didn't. Instead, he turns to the, re to the religious leaders and he challenges their system in which they had a monopoly on people being healed. That's certainly one of the lessons here. And another lesson, just as important, is that it wasn't Jesus who initiated all of this. It was the man's friends. They started it. All of this reminds me of the major shift that has taken place in many resilience and post-traumatic growth studies over the past few decades. I'm reading about this for a research paper right now. We used to think that resilience is an individual characteristic alone, that it was something innate to a singular person. But that way of thinking is increasingly being replaced by the theories that resilience is a communal attribute. We are resilient to the extent that we participate in a resilient, life-giving community network of friends and kin. The idea of rugged individualism is being replaced by we shall overcome. That's certainly, again, what we see here in this story. Now thinking about yourself, do you belong to this kind of community? Do you belong to a we-shall-overcome community? Or are you trying to be resilient as a rugged individual? Have you woven your life into a network of friendships that can catch you when you're in free fall? If not, how can you foster those kinds of connections? As Fran says all the time and said it again this morning, we can't do your spiritual work for you. We can be your companions on that journey, though we can walk a piece of it with you, but it's your journey to nurture those kinds of friendships to catch you. Now, for the last few minutes here, let me just be a, a bit more practical. So far, we've been exploring a biblical narrative that paints a picture of Christian commitment to one another. And that's a beautiful image. It's an ideal for us all to live toward. But I also realize that not all friendships are like that, are they? A few more quick thoughts here. The ancient Greek philosopher, Aristotle, proposed that there are actually three kinds of friendships in life. The first kind he called friendships of utility. These are friends that we have because we share a common goal. Maybe this is why you're friends with work colleagues or someone who knows how to fix cars or someone you serve uh, a charity with. Hopefully not this charity. We might refer to these friends as acquaintances or colleagues more than friends. They're friendships of utility. This doesn't mean we can exploit them, you know, be, be ethical, but it's okay for people to be in this circle of your life. And then you tend to let those relationships end when you no longer share the goal that you are both working toward. They're friendships of utility, and that's okay. There's no, there's no shame in that. We need these people in our lives, and we're probably not going to share the most sensitive parts of our lives with them. That's okay. So friendships of utility. Second, he said there are friendships of pleasure or friendships of happiness. These are friendships that make you feel happy. Here you'll find the friendships that you have with that really funny or witty person. Why do you keep them around? They make you laugh. Or the kind of friend you are with your drinking buddy or your soccer buddy or the kind of friend you are with those probably in your social media feed, something about what they post makes you happy or having some kind of connection with them makes you happy. 
These are also important relationships, and we like to be around people that make us happy. But these friendships will end, too, as soon as they no longer make us happy. Again, no guilt about that. It's just part of life. They're friendships of happiness. Third kind of relationship that he proposes, identifies, it's what he calls friendships of virtue. These are friendships in which we actively work to bring about what's best for the other for the sake of the other. They are friendships in which I'm not here to get anything from you, but instead just being with you and working for your good makes me feel more alive. It's a friendship we bring out the best in one another. These aren't relationships based on shared grievances or shared hatreds. In a church community, I know we can share plenty of wounds and hatreds and things like that, but this isn't that kind of relationship. It's not a relationship based on a shared goal of accomplishing a task or uh, where it has the self-serving goal of happiness. Those are utilitarian and pleasure relationships. Instead, they are relationships based on commitment to one another. They're relationships based on virtue, and we don't come across many of those in life, he says. These are the relationships that we hate to see die. They're the ones that we should be giving most of our effort and our energy to. If you're not sure, how do I allocate my time to different relationships? He says, put it here. 90% of your effort should go here. Relationships of virtue. These are the ones that practice the Christian ideal of agape, love, or other-centered love. I would put the friendship in our biblical story here. Hopefully, our romantic relationships in life, they become this third kind. I suspect they don't start out as this third kind. They're probably more utilitarian or pleasure, but hopefully they become this third kind. If they are to have a chance at enduring the years, they have to become this. Sometimes our familial relationships, relationships with parents, siblings, so on, they become these kinds of relationships sometimes not right any amens on yeah i know me too i don't know where women's relationships fit in with these three types but i know that i would put most of the male relationships i have in uh, i wouldn't put it into this third category of a virtue relationship just a few of a very few most of my friendships with other men are relationships of utility and happiness there's always this subtle undercurrent of trying to measure up trying to be witty and funny enough, trying to add some kind of unique value, some way of trying to show that I'm a real man because of X, Y, or Z. Unfortunately, when I treat relationships like that, I don't give them the chance to be a friendship of virtue or love. What would it be like, think for yourself, to stop treating friendships in the first two kinds and treat them like the third kind? Again, not all of your relationships can be that, or to invest in those third kinds of relationships. To, they would be relationships where you let yourself be carried like the man on the mat, to let yourself be so loved. Think about your own friendship. How many are friendships of utility, of pleasure, and of virtue? Which ones do you give the most weight and energy to? Like the people in our story, who are the friends in your life that They would lose their manners and they would destroy property for your good. I hope you have some of those. 
They are a gift from God. They are a source of your healing and your wholeness. And so, may we all be held in a web of community and friends that catch us when we are in freefall, that hold us when it's our turn to be carried. May we all work to intertwine our lives into the well-being of others because this gets the attention of God. Because in this, there is a divine mystical causality that brings about the healing of one another and our world. Amen.